Hey, what's going on today, my heroes? On this week's episode, I'm interviewing philosopher, actor, director, Micah Daly. I met Micah through taking her class, Philosophy One. Now, the funny thing is, I didn't even necessarily need to take the class, as it didn't really fulfill a requirement for me. It wasn't a necessity for my transcripts or anything like that. I just sort of was interested in the subject matter. And you'll hear on in the conversation that we talk about sort of things working out in funny ways and sort of fate playing kind of a funny role in life sometimes, even in ways that you never expect it to, like taking somebody's philosophy class and then learning that they're an actor and director and sort of bonding over things both in and outside of class. So it just goes to show that it's sometimes kind of fun to try new things and try to like pursue things that interest you maybe they're not going to exactly impact your life in any significant or overall way or maybe they do you never know what's going to come from things so i enjoyed this conversation micah has an incredibly awesome story just the way that she's come to be a fully fulfilled person the beautiful spirit that she is today i i knew i had to have her on her show from her vibe, just the way that she tells a story in class, the way she has a passion for what she does. To me, that is inspiring, you know. I love people that are passionate about what they do in all walks of life, you know. Not even necessarily art. Like I said, I was first inspired with Micah's vibe from the way that she teaches, you know. And I, I got to know some of my fellow students in the class because I got to ask them questions, like, in regards to what they wanted to know about her. And it was a fun exercise getting to know like some of the people that you would assume to be like the quietest ones in class sort of coming forward with kind of the more in-depth questions, you know. So it just goes to show that you truthfully, you, you can never judge a book by its cover, you know. You can never write off somebody for a perceived assumption that you have with them, you know. But enough of my rambling, guys. Now on to the interview, and I hope you enjoy the show. Hello, my heroes, and welcome to this week's episode of the Indestructible Podcast, the podcast for the people, the podcast that can never die. I am your host, the Indestructible Danny Cano, and today I'm sitting here with the awesome and amazing Micah Daly. How are you doing today? I'm well. Awesome. How are Mike, you? I'm good. No one ever asks how I'm doing, but <laughs> finally, thank you. Uh, Micah is a teacher, she's an actor and a director and so many other things, but I think the first thing I'd like to get into with you, Micah, is... What drew you to teaching? What what compelled you to do it? Well, I had not planned on being a teacher. I was going to continue researching in philosophy, living in my tiny little apartment in New York City, uh, in Alphabet City, making films, writing novels. That was the plan. Nice. And, uh, and I had a great lucrative job uh, in uh, business doing project management. Mm. And uh, so life was perfect. That was the plan. And then 9-11 happened. Oh. So I lost my job, I lost my health, uh, everything was restructured in New York City, so that kind of... Were you in the area when it... I, yeah, I was in the area, I worked down there, uh, so the, yeah, um, yeah, so I lived in Alphabet City, and then I worked right next to, in the American Express building next to the Twin Towers, mm -hmm. and where, and I was riding my bicycle to work in those days, and where my really? bicycle would have been locked up was completely decimated. Wow. So then, all of a sudden, here I was without options to continue that kind of work because a lot of people lost jobs and businesses just kind of restructured yeah. right after 9-11. And uh, so my thesis advisor said, it's time for you to give back. 
I was in his office and he said, it's time for you to give back. It's time for you to start teaching. Mm-hmm. And he got on the phone and got me a job. And did you sort of feel like that was sort of like maybe like fate? Sort of stepping in, feeling not in the, not in the moment. I was mad at him. Oh, <laughs> I was like, how, dare, how dare he tell me that it's time for me to give back? Mm-hmm. And um, and but then he got me the job, and I walked in the classroom terrified. Mm-hmm. I really wanted to go home and and go to bed was it your and first not experience? do that. Yeah, and I remember turning to the board and feeling like I was a you know a child at the chalkboard <laughs> pretending to be a teacher. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, and then but the students loved it right away mm-hmm. and responded and all of a sudden it just breathed that positive this, reinforcement oh yeah i breathed this new life and and possibility into what i could do with philosophy in the world mm-hmm. and then i was hooked and what I specifically drew you to teaching philosophy in particular well i mean it wasn't about teaching philosophy it was just that's what i was qualified to do oh. <laughs> so, right. and i do love philosophy i love reading it and and by you know, being kind of pushed into that position, then I learned to love to teach it. Mm. And I see that it has, you know, practical, positive results in students' lives. Mm. And how did you feel your life impacted then on? Like, personally, spiritually, mentally? Well, I think then I, I, well, first of all, my thesis advisor was right. It was time for me to give back. I'd spent enough time taking things in and contemplating, so it was time for me to be in the world and sharing what I had learned. And that ends up being quite a beautiful thing. Yeah, Uh, I think it's incredibly interesting when people find something that maybe in life they didn't plan on doing, but they find a whole new life from doing things that are kind of outside their comfort zones, you know? Yeah, and I think, and also I'm a little bit quirky, and so by standing up in front of a classroom, (laughs) then I'm exposing myself to criticism. And also one of the things that I have talked with uh, a lot of colleagues is that there's something about teaching philosophy Mm. that if it's going to be successful, you have to expose a little bit of yourself, Mm. your soul. humanity. Yeah, in the way you don't necessarily have to Mm. in others. So all of that, my sensitivity and vulnerability, was a huge step to be willing to do that. Mm. Um, And but I do it now, and I it's wonderful. Have you had any like overtly like negative uh, like students that kind of like made you feel a bit uncomfortable with that? Not really. But there are moments where there's resistance, mm. and what I've learned is that those usually, oh no, mm. actually so far without fail, those are the ones who end up coming around and loving it the most <laughs> and need it the most. Like so it. what I learned about that is, so I kind of call them hecklers, mm. you know, like what stand-up <laughs> like comedian com- yeah. has hecklers, and um, usually they're the ones who need it the most and are responding to it the most, and mm. so what I learned is I needed to be strong for them. Mm-hmm. That's what the world was calling me to do, and trust that it's going to come around always does. Mm. There may be an exception someday in the future, yeah. but it hasn't <laughs> been in 17 years. Mm. So overall, when did philosophy first come to you? When did you know that that was sort of a th- something that you wanted to study and know more about? Well, I was given Albert Camus' The Stranger mm. when I was... I think 15 years old and I read that and I thought oh there's something here Mm. but I didn't even know or think that I could get a PhD in philosophy and I was interested in the arts so and I was a punk rocker and then you know so I had my my punk rock years 
And then I left punk rock when it became violent mm-hmm. and got a job. <laughs> yeah. I got a job in an IT department. So I started working in computers mm-hmm. and, uh, you know, traveling the U.S. and Puerto Rico teaching computers just when they were wow. starting to develop laptops, mm-hmm. you know, in, in um, you know, businesses. Mm-hmm. And in the evening because apparently that wasn't enough for me to do. Uh, in the evening, I started taking philosophy courses at L.A. City College. Nice. And loved it <laughs> so much. And then, so then I retired from that work at, I think I was 24, mm-hmm. and just you know started writing and going to school and kind of dedicated my life in a new direction. So mm-hmm. that's kind of how it came to be. Wow. But I was still, when I did my undergrad work, I was still undecided as to if I was going to go to film school mm-hmm. or you know study um, writing further or do philosophy. So that didn't have that decision didn't really happen until after I finished my bachelor's degree. Mm. And would you recommend for somebody that is like say in their 20s to go out and pursue other ventures that maybe interest them, maybe push them outside of their comfort zone, maybe they may find something new by doing things? I think we need to redesign our lives often. And the world that we're in right now, it's predicted that the jobs that will be available for ten year in ten years haven't even been developed yet. Makes so we sense, need yeah. to have that skill of redesigning ourselves um, and uh, coming up with new projects and changing the trajectory of what we're doing. It keeps us fresh and interested. Yeah, exactly. Sometimes people get too set in their ways, or uh, you know what? It, it gives me money. I'm just gonna do it for the rest of the life. And that's how people go on living unfulfilled lives, you know? That's right. And then what would you say for anybody that's sort of feeling kind of like lost currently in their lives? Uh, Check in with themselves and see what is it that they've always wanted to do but have been afraid Mm. and do that. Nice. Now, speaking on something that you've always wanted to do, how did you get interested in film? What drew you to that? Been a, I was a fan of film ever since I was a little girl. Mm. I would save all of my babysitting money to go to the <laughs> movies on the weekends. And then I, w- I had uh, all kinds of photo albums that were, you know, clippings of movie posters mm. because I just loved film. Awesome. And then the first classes that I took outside of uh, high school were acting classes. So that really was where I wanted to go. Uh, you know, I even young when I was living in Minnesota, I would go to the cities and audition for TV shows nice. as this little country bumpkin. You know? <laughs> and, uh, so I always wanted to do that, but I wasn't brave enough then I wasn't brave enough when I was younger to because to act you have to expose yourself yeah. in a way that you is so vulnerable and I wasn't I, I couldn't do it and then did you come from a system or a family that at all like in, inspired you to do it or push you to do it no no mm. no it was just exactly. no no I don't know where it came from I but I am naturally a storyteller and mm. you know we were always doing plays in the backyard so uh, that were well received. Maybe it had something to do with that. Who knows yeah. what comes first? It's just the whole positive reinforcement that you give to a kid, making them feel, maybe I can do this, you know? Oftentimes people, they just feel something is so unobtainable or they feel, oh, I can never do that. So that's why they never pursue it. But I think more and more we should push others why not try? If you like it, just see what happens, you know? Yeah, and if you really wanted enough persistence and, you know, doing what it takes to meet the right people <laughs> and um, having the skills, 
you'll you'll get there in one way or another. I think so too. And even if you don't, at least you can say you tried it. You know. Yeah, you don't want to sit on the rocking chair and, and say, <laughs> "I wish I would have done oh, that," or "I God. always wanted to do That's that." That's like no. such a big fear of mine. Yeah, yeah, and you're not gonna let. <laughs> you know, that it's like you you gotta live now. You know, and we talk about it sometimes in class, like philosophy, that pushes you to live in the now. Don't dwell on negatives. Pursue positives that reinforce your life, give you something to go on for, you know? Right, carpe diem. Yeah. Trust the unfolding of divine logos. Exactly. Follow your bliss, and and it'll take you where you need to go. Mm. And speaking on that, how do you think philosophy can help in somebody's daily life, like viewing it through philosophy? Well, I think it can help us talk about the things that we're really not permitted to talk about, Mm. you know, questioning things that are that are presented to us as fact, which are really not certain. (laughs) So, I mean, I think this brings us to a question of epistemology and what we can know. Mm. And um, a a lot of things are presented to to us as final knowledge. And as it turns out, there's a lot of uncertainty. So I think philosophy gives us an opportunity to examine those uncertainties. Mm. And I think that's satisfying to us all because we know there are things that are not certain, but we don't have the tools to really defend that position. So I think philosophy gives us so many tools in that regard how to how to think well how to not transcend the limits of human knowledge so we can and then also to return to ourselves exactly yeah and then also through philosophy like studying it and how do you feel that it's helped you as an artist oh gosh i mean <laughs> it's it's everything it's helped me as an artist it's helped me uh in my everyday experience but how does it help it, me as an artist mm-hmm. uh i kind of I've spent a lot of time examining the human condition from Mm. philosophical perspectives starting in the golden age of Greece 2,500 years ago. So uh, not that I know everything, (laughs) but I do see the fundamental challenges that we face as human beings and and that's what the art of filmmaking and acting is all about. I define acting as a pursuit of the truth through character. Mm. And I think philosophy is a pursuit of the truth. Mm. Regardless of what the answers may be. Yeah, it's not that it's definitely going to give us answers, (laughs) uh, but it's going to allow us to ask questions. Mm. And it also gives us permission to be honest about what we don't know. Mm. And the world doesn't usually want us to take that position. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) And I know you have used your sort of philosophy teachings to help some of the films that you've made. If you could share maybe some of the projects that you've been involved in, um, what compelled you to make them? Well, uh, my uh, my wish has been for such a long time to bring together film and writing and philosophy. And so I made one short film based upon a parable written by Kierkegaard. Mm. And I made another film based upon a legend around Rene Descartes. Mm. Um, yeah, and so that's that's how I've done it. It's been quite some time. It's time for me, I think, to do another new yeah, project. Yeah, But sequel. I'm not sure. Yeah, <laughs> and I don't know what that will be. Mm. Do you have anything that's, like, piquing your interest right now? Well, I think... The thing that I can't let go of and I published a paper on recently is the hyperpolarization that Mm. we're experiencing in the world. So I would like to examine that in a narrative, Mm. uh, but it's, I'm not there yet. Mm. 
But you'll get there. Yeah, I hope You've so. You've got to drive. Yeah, that, <laughs> that I do have. Yeah. And But why do you feel that we don't see a lot of women in the philosophy field? Why do you feel th- th- there seems to steer towards more towards men? Well, I mean, in, in part, it's because women didn't have access to college. They weren't mm-hmm. permitted to participate in philosophy. So there was a time in the 17th century where we read Anne Con- Conway, yeah. and she was able to engage with philosophers through letter writing, but she wasn't permitted to go to college. Mm-hmm. So in, in part, it's that history of the men have always been doing it, and the women didn't even have access. Yeah. Uh, and and so why is it still the case? I think it's lingering from that, but you know it's not entirely certain. It's it's a it's a male dominated world, and in some ways, women are more interested in maybe other fields. Mm. Um, but I've never felt as though I wasn't respected. Mm you know, as a woman participating. But it's it's a challenging field. Yeah. And you for have, anybody, yeah. For anybody. And you have to really have a passion for it. Mm. And um, I I don't e I don't know why there aren't as many women who have a passion about it. I don't have an answer. Mm. Uh, I do hope by teaching uh, philosophy mm. that we get yeah. more women to participate. Hell yeah. <laughs> uh, and I and I do see that happening, you know, even in our classroom. They, nice. I think, in general, philosophy is thought to be an intimidating subject. <laughs> it's a you know, heavy, yeah. students are sort of like, I have to take a philosophy course, and um, and then when they see that they can actually do it, I think that changes, you know, people's mind about, you know, it being something that they can pursue. And any advice out there for any female philosophers? Do it. Do it. Uh, you know, uh, participate in the process. We need you. We need your voice. We need the perspective of women Absolutely. in philosophy, in healthcare, in all of the different areas. So, um, if you if you have the passion for it, uh, do it. And if anyone tries to push you out because you're a female, don't allow that to happen. Yeah, <laughs> hell yeah. I think just overall as a people, we need to have more and more voices given platforms that they can express maybe something they've long felt dormant within them, you know? And I, I think sometimes it is hard to do that because now we sort of live in like an outrage culture that's sort of like, he's right, he's wrong, she's right, she's wrong. There's only, there seems to be only like black or white choices in life. And how do you feel that outrage culture can be viewed differently with philosophy? Well, what you call outrage culture, I call hyperpolarization, mm, right? Absolutely. Um, so having polarized positions such that we can't even have a conversation with each other. And um, how can philosophy help with that? Mm. It how, Well, in, in class today, uh, we examined Immanuel Kant and how he solves the antinomies in his critique of pure reason by showing that uh, when we have two polarized positions, uh, it doesn't necessarily mean that we're in conflict. Mm-hmm. So if we can move out into you know the, the larger 
philosophical um, or moral principles that mm. unite us globally, mm. then we can deal with the polarized positions um, in such a way that at least we can start having conversations about it. I mean, I think what uh, what philosophy helps us do is examine what we don't know, and what we don't know, mm. for example, is uh, what's the perfect political position to yeah. have. We don't yeah. know that, but we also can't have that conversation by and large right Seems now. Seems like it, yeah. Uh, because people claim to know it, and and by answering questions that we don't really have uh, answers to, that's what pits us in, in polarized positions against each other. Mm. So I think that philosophy will at least open the door for us to start talking to each other. Mm. Or at least it can. Open the conversation, you know? I think we need to engage in dialogue. Mm. You know, we need to recognize each other. We need to talk to each other. We need to see each other as, uh, as valued human beings and not people with different political positions. Yeah, exactly. And then have you, like, had any personal experiences with somebody that was completely against something that you were kind of believing in? Um, I've, I, I've found that it's impossible to have conversations about politics with people <laughs> who have a dogmatic position yeah. <laughs> about what's right, that it's just not even possible to get started. And mm. Kant has a, a quote about this in his logic, where mm. he says, uh, you know, you can't prove to a ridiculous person that um, he is ridiculous. All such efforts shall be in vain. Mm -hmm. So sometimes we can't have conversations with people who are dogmatic, but I think it's important to be willing to try. Uh, yeah. Uh, yeah. Mm. Yeah, because if someone's closed for business, we can't get started. So the ancient Greek philosophers thought that in order philosophy, for philosophy to get started, mm. it, we need at least two sincere individuals. So sincere individuals have a will would have to have a willingness to admit to what they don't know, mm. or admit their faults, maybe a little bit in their beliefs. Be willing to see different point of views, you know. That's right. And I know we've just discussed in class that it does sort of seem that people now are growing further and further apart. Why do you think that is? Well, um, oh gosh, there's such that's such a. Uh, there's a long answer there, but we do know statistically that people in higher education tend to not have friends or associate with people who have a difference of opinion mm. than their own, which is odd yeah. because you would think the higher education, the more willing, Be more worldly, you know. Yeah, so that's not happening. So that's in part one of the problems. So they go into their uh, their their isolated kind of thinking and just associate with people who think like them, mm. and. So we right now, and, and but but it shifts right now. Uh, by and large, academia is leaning left. Mm -hmm. There have been times when it leaned right, mm -hmm. uh, and that's a strong uh, voice. And then also we know that Hollywood uh, is leaning left. Yeah. So that's kind of all we're hearing from. So mm -hmm. that's what developed that kind of hyperpolarized or that polarized position. And then what's happened is the people on the other side have been silenced. Mm -hmm. And so they don't speak up. They're pushed to the limit that when they do speak out, it sort of just like comes off as just a crazy outrage or anger, you know? Right. As opposed to just being a different viewpoint than yeah. you, you know? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, so I think I don't, uh, that's 
why have we gotten into this position? Well, you know, there's there's a there's another answer to this too, uh, and the other answer is that people um, we have more people going to college now of di- from di- representing different communities, mm-hmm. and so uh, with that happening, there's been a, a wish to create uh, equity and diversity, and to do that. There's been a, a tendency to not want to, um, I guess, offend. Mm. And if we are going to engage in a conversation about politics and have different positions that are very strong, offense, we're going to offend each other. Mm. And it, so I think this, this uh, well-intended wish to not offend anyone mm. has contributed to this polarization we're being so careful and and we mean well but that ends up silencing an entire population Mm. so i think that's contributed to it too so i think we have to get sort of like a double-edged sword yeah (laughs) what what was well intended is is playing out negatively for everyone Mm. do you feel as a teacher from your viewpoint that it's maybe sort of shifting like to becoming even now a little bit I think that in the classroom, I see consistently that students understand this and want to have this conversation. We just don't have a platform for having it because social media is highly polarized. Um, um, Out in our world, our dinner parties hyper polarized. (laughs) In politics, hyper polarized. So, but I, but I have hope because in the classroom, we can see that everyone is just begging to have a place to have these conversations so I think it will change but I don't know maybe it's up to us to create a platform for doing it yeah yeah, to have these kinds of conversations outside of the classroom Mm -hmm. and I know professor that you've done some research on some of the negative effects of cleaning products that you sort of shared your experience and if you could share exactly what your findings were what you well, yeah, so I wrote a book called Cleaning Wisdom, and uh, I used Kant. Uh, I used Kant's framework to sort of come up with this approach to cleaning. And uh, basically, what I did is I went through uh, everything that was in my house, and I looked at the cleaning products, and I analyzed the ingredients to find, you know, what 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 we know is to be a healthy ingredient, and what we don't know is a healthy ingredient and what we know is to be toxic and I got rid of all the toxic stuff (laughs) you know in in a way it's very simple and I had a big bag of stuff which I felt guilty about throwing away but I threw it away and uh and then I looked for something that would help us clean that we know is healthy for us Mm. and it was just ended up being just because we we've done this work in chemistry Mm. so you look at the chemical breakdown of just a few essential oils Mm. that we know are healthy for our bodies in fact there there are a few trees that share a kind of a similar um, immune system uh, to human beings, and you so take those few, very few, because some essential oils are toxic for us. <laughs> yeah, you know, yeah. Just because it's natural doesn't mean it's healthy. And um, so to clean the house with those, as it turns out, um, uh, is is not only cleans the house well, keeps it clean in harmony with nature, so it's clean longer, but it also mm. proactively helps us, um, you know, maintain our own health. Mm. 
And the number three cause of disability and illness in women right now is autoimmune disorders. Mm. And, it, and it looks like those are environmental, mm. and it's our cleaning products that's contributing to really? it. Really? Yeah. Which one specifically? Uh, well, we don't want to name, oh, yeah, but, yeah, yeah. you know. Just stuff. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and uh, by taking those out, it allows the body to sort of heal um, in ways that it's not having to defend itself against toxins in the It just household. gets so used to, like, drugging itself up that it doesn't know how to take care of itself naturally. Right. It's, we, it's so defending itself against the toxins in the home that it can't just maintain, our immune systems can't maintain our own mm-hmm. health. And many, many people have gotten better mm-hmm. using this plant. Wow. Yeah. And I know you said that you've actually shared some like negative experiences with those that you said you sort of had some people coming after you. Right. Well, yeah. So, so, well, the reason I wrote the book is that lots of people were not getting the help they needed from doctors. Mm-hmm. You know, they, they went as far as they could and then, um, you know, were still sick. So they, uh, friends would send them to me and I'd be sent writing all these emails. And finally someone said, why don't you just make it into a little handbook? And I thought, oh, great idea. So I just did that. <laughs> That's actually how the book came to be. And then, you know, thought, because I did all of this research, it's sound research, mm-hmm. and it helps people. But when I shared it online, there was some resistance. People wanted to keep that same old yeah. uh, cleaner that they'd been using. And they mm-hmm. thought um, it was outrageous that anything like this how would dare be you? Sick- <laughs> Yeah. So I was It all very, ties in, you know. I was very surprised by that because I wasn't for I wasn't proselytizing I wasn't saying you have to use it I was just saying here's an alternative but no people are very you know convinced that what they're doing and what they've always done and their grandparents have done (laughs) is the right thing to do and so I really just sort of stopped promoting it Mm. it's it's on Amazon if grandma used it it was okay (laughs) I've had people say that to me yeah and look, yeah. she lived to 108, you know. Right, and <laughs> good. Like, and I, you know, um, I don't want, um, I'm not criticizing grandma. Yeah, exactly, <laughs> right? And it all ties into like what we were talking about before. It's just people are unwilling to just hear different points of view, you know? Yeah, it, yeah. It, it's sort of just like, like we were talking about, you say hyperpolarization, I say the outrage culture. It's I like, like that too, it's just... I just, I don't know, I, 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 I've never felt that myself, like I've never felt, of course I feel kind of like a little bit saddened when I hear kind of like outrageous claims and this and that that go against my personal beliefs, mm-hmm. but I try my best to understand maybe where they're coming from. I, I believe that people are more um, victims of their circumstances. You're either born into probably a well-off place, so you're probably going to be raised to be more conservative fiscally, whatever it may be. You know, so, but it doesn't mean that the other person that has a different point of view is wrong, and you neither, you know, it's... Well, yeah, and that does look like one of the th- one of the errors in thinking today is to think that any one political position is equivalent to the good. Yeah. Because we're just still struggling as a human culture to develop the best political position. Mm. And it seems like, by and large, that's what we all want. We just don't know what it is yet. So yeah. instead of being willing to admit that, hate develops between the two positions. Do you think we'll ever reach a point where everybody agrees? I don't know about that, <laughs> but I do think it's important that we, we get to a point where we can start talking again, and I think we will. I think so. From my point of view, just 
being somebody that's out there experiencing talking to people, it seems like more and more people in real life are more inclined to be like, yeah, I, I want to listen to both sides. Whereas things like we were talking about like social media online that sort of only is, tend to emphasize the extremes on either spe- ends of the spectrum. That's what any that's all anybody hears. Yeah. Nobody hears like the in between, <laughs> which is what most people honestly think. Right. From my experience. Yeah, and I I know I've I I ran a um, a program called the Hub for Intellectual Dialogue, which is where we did this. Mm. And I've been wanting to find a way to bring that out into the world. Mm where there would be a place online that we could do this. And it seems possible. (laughs) I just don't know yet how (laughs) to really make it happen. Because yes, look in our class. We have 50 students in this class, 50 in my later afternoon class. I have 40 at two other classes. They all want to talk and recognize and Mm. love more and hate less. That's what people want. Mm. It's, it doesn't seem like that hard of a like answer, right? <laughs> right? Right, but then you go to a dinner party and you have <laughs> you see a very different perspective, exactly. or you go on to uh, Twitter and you see quite a different perspective. Mm. Yeah, exactly, like the, the online presence, culture. right? Yeah, <laughs> and and it's some have argued it has something to do with um, being anonymous. But that's not, and and that is a thing, but that's not even the case now. People are very willing to hate with their name. Yeah, yeah, I've (laughs) seen it. Right out there, yeah. (laughs) And I just, I can say personally, you're incredibly inspiring. It's great that you try to put out as much positivity in the world as you can, because I I know you shared some experiences where you've gone through some hard times yourself in your personal life. If you feel comfortable, do you mind sharing maybe how philosophy had helped you through those tough times? Yeah, no. I mean, one of the toughest times that I went through, uh, details don't matter, but what I did is I kept my paperback copy of Marcus Aurelius's Meditations always with me, the mm-hmm. one I brought to class all tattered and torn. And uh, I would just, you know, follow the Stoic Credo. What do you have control over? What do you not have control over? Mm. What ought you be indifferent to, which is the trivialities? And um, stay in the present moment. And if I couldn't do that for myself, I would open to a passage of his book and it would bring me right back. It was just this tool that kept me very clear and grounded until I got out of the the mess I was in. <laughs> uh, and it helped, right? Uh, I It saved my life, mm. truly. To be able to come back and just be very grounded and and um, and calm, maintain my equanimity, uh, my poise. You know, the world didn't have to change. I just had to be clear. Mm. And that's how philosophy helped me. And, you know, Kant helped me write Cleaning Wisdom. And <laughs> <laughs> I mean, on and on and on. I think... Uh, it's just everybody's buddy. <laughs> Kant. Yeah, no. Early it, yeah, and, I, and a lot of times philosophy is not thought to have this practical application. But we mm. know from Epicurus, he thought it was therapeutic. It seems like it, you know. It doesn't seem like that hard. Because philosophy ties in, I think, a little bit to everything. Sure, because it's asking the fundamental questions. You know, what is a good life? Why is life meaningful? What should I do? What can (laughs) I think? What ought I believe in? And it lets us deal. So what's really important about philosophy is it gives us permission to deal with the unknowns. Mm. You know? Exactly. Yeah. And I think just in closing, I was actually recently able to talk to some of our fellow, my fellow students, 
and I pulled in some questions from them. And so I just thought it'd be kind of fun to go through a little section where I ask you a couple of like student submitted questions, if that's okay. Sure. Awesome. Okay. So first off, what is your personal philosophy? After reading all of these readings and philosophers, what do you personally believe? What do I personally believe? <laughs> I know. Um, well, that's such an open-ended question, but I I believe that uh, we want to connect with each other mm. as human beings. I think we want to love more. I think that uh, the 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 questions that we want to ask. Um, are shared between us all. I think we're more alike than we are different. Mm. I think we do have <laughs> universal moral principles that unite us. I think so. I think with Hume, we do have moral feelings and moral sentiments to care about each other, and that we've just been hoodwinked in a way to think that that's not really there, mm. and that we can return to that, and in so doing, we have happier lives. Mm. And um, next would be, how have you used philosophy in your personal relationships? <laughs> well, I have a principle. I have one uh, moral principle that I keep with me always, mm. and that's never to humiliate other people or mm. myself. And so when I'm, in, you know, when, when relationships are going smooth, it's pretty easy to yeah. figure out what the right, right thing to do is with someone. But when, when you're in a personal relationship, and it could be romantic or family Absolutely. or friends, and they, you know, someone nudges you or offends you, you know, there's a, there's a desire to, to humiliate or retaliate or seek revenge. But when I have this moral principle of do not humiliate others or myself, I pause and act with greater kindness. Mm. And I'm always happy for having done that. Because we don't do anything alone. We need other people. And that person that you think about lashing out at, <laughs> almost invariably, you're going to need them in the future. Yeah. You know? Exactly. In yeah. ways that you can't even imagine. So that pause and that stop and being kind, you're Take like, Take a second oh, to think about what you say, you know? That's right. And you'll be glad for yeah. it. Yeah. <laughs> or at least that's how it's worked we out probably for probably both know from personal experiences, you know? Yeah. Just take a second, think about a philosophy. <laughs> you know, right? Yeah. Um, okay. Um, what got you into acting and what continues you, what, what makes you continue pursuing it now? Well, I stepped away from it for many, many years. And two years ago, I was having a low moment, as we all do, mm. you know? Yeah. And I did what I suggested other people do a little bit earlier in this conversation. Mm -hmm. I checked in with myself. You know, it was, the, it was the dark hour. And I said, what do you really want to do? I remember I was lying on the couch. And I was like, you know what, I wanna act. So I got yeah. up and I, and, I, and I just did sort of like a meditation, let the best acting class come to me. And I Googled it. This is, and yeah. I Googled it. And um, the, the Ruskin School of Acting popped up mm. and classes were just starting. So I sent them an email and the owner of the school said, come in for an interview tomorrow. And I did. And I started, and it's just been the most amazing, hard, <laughs> difficult. Yeah, of I course. mean, oh, nothing easy about this at all. But um, and and I, as it turns out, I really do love it. Mm. And 
uh, and and I think there's proof in that that I've stuck with something that's very difficult, challenging yeah. program for two years now, and so um, that's how I got back into it. Wow! And I have amazing classmates who are very, you know, in love with the pursuit of acting, and I. Th- different after two years so I think it's been good for me in terms of art it's been good for me in terms of philosophy it's also been good for me to be braver yeah. you know in the world <laughs> <laughs> have you used some of those principles in like your teaching absolutely yeah yeah I, I, yeah, I yeah. can see <laughs> yeah because I'm I'm uh, confident in my performance absolutely do you think that teaching in essence is somewhat of a performance absolutely right I think so I think yeah I walk in and uh you know, just like, boom, it's like yeah. the, the curtain goes up. It's showtime. And, uh, and that's, I think, a marvelous way to share philosophy. Mm. I hope it's I well received so. in in that way. As a student, it does make us feel more inclined to want to know, oh, she's so excited about it. What? <laughs> like, what? Like, talking about, like, Plato and uh, <laughs> all those types. And it's, like, typically something that the normal student would be like, oh, my God. And it's, you make it fun, so thank you. <laughs> well, thank you. That makes me feel so good. Yeah. Um, it's funny because it almost seems like fate, the way things willed for you with the acting. I think it is. And we've talked about it before in class that sometimes life sort of seems like it does work out in sort of like positive ways or things sort of seem to will themselves as they should be, you know? Well, right, because if we can be um, humble about what it is that we know and be open to there might be something better for us out there than we have planned for ourselves, mm-hmm. then you can trust that and, and you have to do the, the work, um, but you can trust oh, yeah. that it's, that it's gonna, going to unfold well in ways that you don't know. So it's like when you lose a job that you really loved, mm-hmm. if you can trust that that's taking you somewhere important on your journey that you can't see from that perspective, you up the odds of that really happening, mm. right? Because if you have exactly. an attitude of anger and revenge and hurt and victimhood, then you might miss those opportunities that are out there. Exactly. You always have to have a PMA, a positive mental attitude. I love that, a PMA. <laughs> I've never heard it called that. <laughs> For me, I've always, like, sort of expounded that sort of thinking too with like friends who are sort of like in really deep relationships that tend to like break off and we see a lot of like young people getting sort of like hung up on like one person especially with like the whole social media age we live in it almost seems like you can't get rid of your ex because you could constantly see them on like your Instagram or something with somebody new and stuff like that so I just tried telling my friends or anybody that I know that's like I can't get away from them it's like the world is filled with like billions of people you really think that that's the only choice you have you know like that's that's exactly right I mean so I mean when we when we do fall in love and we break up it's difficult because the love doesn't go away yeah what goes away is the relationship I think when two people fall in love it's forever uh and I think philosophy can help because then we get to be honest we don't we don't uh, then go and look at the relationship and say it wasn't worthwhile or that you never really loved someone because love doesn't exist in unhealthy relationships. I don't want to believe in that. But that's just not true. Yeah. Love does exist in unhealthy relationships. So what breaks up is the relationship. And then I think we have to be, we have to take care. Well, one, we have to process it. We have to grieve. We have to be sad. Yeah. 
and and two, we have to have boundaries. So maybe we have to not yeah. encounter, quit looking at their page. Yeah. You know, <laughs> it's hard sometimes when it's it so is easy. It's so hard. It but. is. Yeah. So we have to be kind, and you're exactly right. We have to open up our hearts to find someone new, mm. fall in love again. We can do that. There's not just one person. Exactly. And I think tying into that, how do you think philosophy can help with somebody that sort of is having a little bit of mental health issues? Well, I mean, in so many ways we can do that. I, I think um, returning to the self and trusting yourself and not being at odds with yourself. Mm. So this idea of, you know, why am I depressed? Is there something deep within me that's broken? And uh you know, usually what it is is we're, we're, we're not living uh, in, in accordance with our bliss or our harmony. We, um, you know, applying something like um, Marcus Aurelius's uh, Stoic Credo. Mm, I love that. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, that, can, that takes care of lots of things because we know usually when we have depression or anxiety, it's about something that happened in the past, mm. but that's over. Or it's about anticipating something that we may or may not have in the future. Mm. So if we come back into the present moment, that takes care of a lot of our our troubles and worries and fears. So I think there are very practical applications uh, with all of the philosophers. You know, just like Hume, returning to uh, value our feelings again. Yeah. So where, what are you know, our depression is taking us somewhere. What if we, instead of being fearful mm. of it and silencing it, what if we listen to it? Mm. Stop being afraid of our own selves. Yeah. Uh, and, and you know, I'm certified in philosophical counseling and mm. had a business where I actually helped people mm. who had depression and anxiety with philosophical texts. How was that? Wonderful. They loved it. Some people just need uh, different solutions than we get in other places, which is not to diminish the value of the other yeah. tools. Yeah. I think we need all of our tools. We need to address um, our thinking philosophically. We need to do spiritual work. We need to do psychological work. We need to get out, not isolate, get out there and have friends, mm -hmm. start a new career. You know, it's just yeah. so, it's not one thing. And I think that's where mm -hmm. people tend to go. They think there's one solution. Yeah. but that that they're not <laughs> exactly right <laughs> yeah. and I think just personally myself as an artist I do see that I myself when I am going through lows or through harsh times I tend to use that as fuel for my art or I'll use it for sort of inspiration maybe for a song a short film or any piece of writing that I want to work on do you recommend that maybe for somebody uh, I think art is essential and whatever art it is it could be drawing it could be taking photographs it could be you know like you making films writing stories um, it's absolutely essential for me if I have darkness I get my camera out and I go take pictures and the photographs I take in my darkness are gorgeous they're better than the photographs I take when I'm happy so there must be something of value yeah. to that darkness to sort of put it down on paper or something, just record, give it, get a recording of it or something, right? Yeah, yeah, and it's processing <laughs> it, letting it, so not pushing it away, not fearing it. Yeah, I think we should all have some sort of artistic pursuit, and it could be anything. It could exactly. be a craft, craft making. Oh yeah, or like uh, cooking food or something like that's that. That's exactly right. <laughs> cooking a beautiful dinner. Oh, that's so for you know that. yourself or your dogs or you know, your <laughs> friends. <laughs> I can't cook, so I just look on it all. Like, oh my god, 
how do they do it on Top Chef, you know? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and just moving on to like a lighter subject, um, what is your favorite movie? Oh, I don't think I can pick <laughs> one movie. Uh, but, um, hmm. Oh, shit. Or what is one you keep finding yourself coming back to? Um, well, one of my favorite films is The Ghost and Mrs. Muir. Mm. Uh, I don't know. It's, it's a woman who uh, falls in love with the ghost of the sailor. Mm. And a uh, beautiful film that, yeah. When is it from? hoping you wouldn't ask oh. it's, a, it's a black and white film and I don't remember oh, I the that. the year of it but it's this beautiful spiritual connection she has to this man and everyone thinks that she's crazy but mm. uh, and she they think she's this crazy lonely spinster mm. but she really has this man that she loves who visits her the sailor it's beautiful it sounds like it and it just permits us to to live our lives the way we want to live it and mm. if other people call us mad well who cares that's, that's yeah. on them exactly wow that 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 i want to see that now <laughs> that sounds like that would be like a great twilight zone episode or something like that <laughs> yeah i grew up on twilight <laughs> oh, i love it too yeah well if finding your favorite movie was kind of hard maybe this may be a little easier what's your favorite marvel movie because oh, i know you've shared that you're a uh, fan yeah no um <laughs> I don't know what my favorite. I think I love whichever Marvel movie I'm watching. <laughs> I can't pick. Mm. Uh, but I love the struggle. I love the optimism about, you know, I love the idea of our having superpowers. Yeah, it's just fun. I, it's fun, but it's also it gives more, inspiration. It is, and it's also morally rich, too. These mm -hmm. questions about good and bad and what the right thing to do is. I mean, that's what the Marvel... We think the Marvel movies are about exciting action, but really they're philosophical tales. Yeah. What's the right thing to do? And how can I use my superpowers to do good? Exactly. And I could just speak from personal experience, seeing my little brother, he's a um, 13, and he loves watching these films, and they sort of give him inspiration to want to get into, like working out or to helping people or just it just gives them a positive attitude towards life and I think the idea that putting out this like hero mentality for kids is a beautiful thing and I, I hate it when people just write them off as kitty fair because it takes away the power and the beauty in them you know I, I think that's absolutely right I could not agree with you more you said that <laughs> beautifully <laughs> uh, thank you um what's your favorite band favorite band Oh, I know I, you say you were a punk rocker. So. I was a punk rocker, and I loved X-Ray Specs. Oh, what? Yeah, those are, and in fact, her daughter, um, uh, the the lead singer of that X-Ray Specs daughter, just published a book, which I ordered. Um, nice. And I'll, so I, oh, there's so many bands that I love, and it just changes over time. I was a punk rocker. <laughs> <laughs> um. This is kind of a funny one. What's your favorite rapper? <laughs> and I, you know, I was I was at the Starwood in the 1980, maybe 79, mm. 80, and at a punk rock show. Mm. And the first rapper rapping music started there. Mm. I was at a show. It was a punk rock show and rap was just coming into being. Nice. And I'll never forget that moment that she came on. It was this woman with dreads and, you know, like all wrapped up, like beautiful. So it was like this 
cross between rap and punk rock, oh, yeah. and she sang, and I just was like stunned. I like, what is this new music? It's a whole and new music. It happened there. to be there, and it was spectacular. I mean, awesome. it was a life changing moment. Do you know the name of the artist? Or? I don't. I know uh, because I was a little kid, yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. sneaking <laughs> into the Starwood. I wasn't supposed to be there, mm-hmm. and uh, awesome. so 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 for me, it just kind of stopped and started there. Mm. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> um, do you believe in God? Oh, I'm not even going to answer that. Mm. I believe in higher. I believe that there's an energy that is grander than us. That's where all the unknowns are. That's where the happy, beautiful moments are. That's where the trust of, <laughs> you know, uh, the unfolding of divine logos. Mm. I trust all of that in some way. Mm. And to me, I think that's what God is. Mm. This idea of things unfolding toward the good or mm. the beautiful. Absolutely. And then finally, if you could change one thing about the world, what would it be? I the thought that we're more different than we are similar to mm. remember that that kind of all do want the same things love friends good education home food and recognition of between each other yeah to, to get back to these very sort of basic principles that we all really want to connect yeah i'd like to change that it sounds like world peace you know no like I'm, I mean, but, but but it really yeah if i could if, if i could get us all talking again at least talking yeah. at least engaging in dialogue respectfully mm. i think that'd be a start wow that, wow that's that's a great answer <laughs> um and finally do you have any upcoming news or any projects or anything in the future that you're working on um, I'm working on a, a monologue. Uh, that's and of course it's going to be filled with philosophy. Cause I can't <laughs> I can't sort of extract yeah. that from my body. Um, but I don't know what's next. Mm. I mean the you the excited? question. I'm very excited. Yeah. Mm. Mm. Is there any? And then finally, is there any links or anything? Any online presence or anything that you'd like to let my listeners know about? Well, uh, the piece that I wrote, the last piece that I published, um, uh, Kantian uh, quarrelsomeness and neighborliness, mm-hmm. I would love to, um, you know, ask more people to read it <laughs> and comment on it, and Absolutely. I'd love to hear. I'll post a link um, in the description. That would be wonderful because that is, you know, my uh, plea for people to start talking again. Mm-hmm. And on that note, Professor, I just want to say thank you so much for your time. I can say truthfully that this is incredibly enlightening. This is incredibly just, it just felt like my soul has just been lifted right now. <laughs> I, I love talking about philosophy with somebody that loves it, you know, and somebody that's well-versed on the subject. So I want to thank you for all the work you're doing as a profoundly passionate teacher. It's like the God's work right here, what you're doing. So I just want to say thank you for all that you've done to the world, all the positivity you put out there, and you are definitely indestructible. (laughs) Thank you for um, inviting me to be on your show. It means everything to me, and I've enjoyed this so much. I think you're doing great work. Thank you. (laughs) Thank you so much. And never forget that you are all indestructible, 
and I'll see you guys next time.